This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Is the construction boom in Denver making the city ugly? Some observers say that many of the apartment complexes going up are unattractive and poorly constructed. They, of course, help meet the need for more housing. But is Denver failing at design? Here's longtime developer and preservationist Dana Crawford speaking with us last year. Growth and change always brings difficulty. The cost of living has increased. And the thing that I regret that's coming with it is an enormous amount of growth of building apartments, rental apartments. And I think so many of them are being constructed from plywood. And I say we're just building a plywood city that 15 years from now isn't going to hold up. Crawford isn't alone. The Denver Fugly Facebook page has nearly 3,000 followers. And last April, architect Jeff Shepard of the firm Roth Shepard wrote an op-ed in the Denver Post with the provocative headline, Denver is a great city, so why the bad buildings? He says thousands of emails flooded his inbox in response. Shepard joins us along with a developer, Matt Schilt is Managing Director of Development for Trammell Crow Residential, which is building several apartment complexes in the Denver area, including one at the former St. Anthony's Hospital site near Sloan's Lake. And gentlemen, welcome to the program. Jeff, in that Denver Post op-ed, you described these buildings as meaningless, uninspiring structures. Why? Well, I think if, if you look at the buildings around Denver, many of the new ones and you travel across the U.S., you'll see similar buildings in, in other cities and states. And using the term meaningless and uninspiring really gets to the fact that many of these buildings look like they could be anywhere, that they don't look like they're respecting the context of Denver, the environment, uh, the conditions that we have here in terms of the amount of sunlight. Um, so they really end up basically looking like they don't belong in Denver. Are there any specific examples that you would point to? Well, even driving in today, and I think there are examples all over um, Denver and Boulder area because I've received so many emails from people in, in neighborhoods. But even today as I was driving 470 and looking off on uh, Lucent Boulevard there, I noticed on one side of the road was a senior housing complex. On the other side was a residential apartment complex that was just constructed. And actually, the senior housing complex was much nicer than the residential housing complex that was being created there. And, and really, the issue that I've noticed is that I think we're actually trying to be almost too complicated with the buildings. So a lot of expense and money is actually going to make the buildings look much more complicated than they need to be. You're describing those buildings that are kind of part stucco, part brick, but they also have columns, and it seems to be a mishmash of architectural styles. Is that what you're getting at? Well, that's what I'm getting at. And and if you look at, at the past, you look at history, um, and one of the most difficult things to do is, in architecture especially, is to describe beauty and what beauty means. Exactly. But if you look at and you, you read, say, 1,700 years ago, Plato and Aristotle actually had a discussion about beauty and the definition of beauty. And they came up with some patterns. And those patterns happened to be things as simple as, well, depth, permanence, um, rhythm, rational grid, rational structure, things that we understand – uh, repetitive geometry, things that we understand and that we actually appreciate. Well, 
those things don't really necessarily talk about style. They talk about patterns that have existed over time that can be interpreted historically but also can be interpreted in a modern way. Well, it would be easy to just talk smack about buildings, but we absolutely wanted the perspective of a developer and that insight. And so, Matt, as a developer, what is your reaction to, to Jeff's criticism of what he sees here? And, you know, really, it sounds like around the country. Yeah, I mean, I don't fundamentally disagree with, uh, you know, what Jeff, uh, you know, recognized in his article and, and some of uh, the different um, – you know things that have come up, like the fugly website. You know, I agree that uh, on on a whole, uh, on average, I think that the development community has an opportunity to do you know a better job than we have been doing from a design perspective. I think it's very difficult to uh, legislate or sanction or agree on producing you know fantastic architecture. But I do think that, um, you know, the buildings that are bad and that are clearly bad, I think that there is an opportunity through discussion and, and perhaps some increased uh, scrutiny design standards to eliminate some of those bad outcomes um, that we're getting. What do you mean by bad outcomes? What are examples in the design that think that, that lead you to think that they're bad? You know, and that's, I mean, it's difficult, um, you know, to pinpoint, I think, you know, to Jeff's point, complexity. When, um, you know, an architect tries to do too much with a particular building, I think that often can be risky and can lead to, you know, but there's all kinds of different things that can cause a building not to fundamentally feel for a layperson when they're standing in front of it to feel like a great building. And I think that, um, you know, I think we can all debate on, you know, what, uh, what we like and from a stylistic standpoint, what feels like a great building. And I think there'll be, you know, a tremendous amount of debate when it comes to that. But I think that, you know, when it comes to a building that turned out poorly or, 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 you know, from a design perspective, you know, really didn't make it, I think that's something that, you know, it's pretty easy to come to a consensus about. And so, so Jeff in his op-ed for the Denver Post said, it's just block after block of repetitive five-story stick-framed rental apartments stacked on top of or connected to massive concrete parking structures. Yes. Is that a bit what you're getting at? Well, no. Um, you know, one thing I would say is that it's become easy to sort of beat up and, and sort of the, you know, the battle cry for this has been stick construction or, or you know, Dana Crawford's sort of uh, uh, description, plywood buildings. I mean, wood frame construction is a cost-effective way to produce you know, a five and now up to a seven-story building. In a city that is desperate for affordable housing. Correct. But the stick itself has very little to do with what the exterior of the building and the skin looks like. Uh, you can have a concrete building that would be 100% lap siding on the exterior while you could have a stick building that would be 100% brick. So the stick itself, although, you know, people like to beat up on it and it's become – you know, again, sort of, you know, the the battle cry of sort of what's going wrong, you know, that that really has little to do with design. Very briefly, are there buildings that your firm has been responsible for that you regret or that you think could have been better? In, in I think every building that we do, we think could have been better when you look back on it. I mean, we like to think that with each one, we learn something and each time we do it, um, we take those lessons and apply them to the best building. But I, I don't think that there's one out there that I would say I regret doing that, you know, being involved in that building or, or, or wow, we, you know, we shouldn't have done that. Jeff, uh, what do you think? Well, I'll, I'll 
see if I can get back to a couple of things. One is we're actually working with a developer right now, and one of the one of the issues that that has come up in in Denver and in neighborhoods is this notion that or is this idea that a developer can actually squish in one extra unit if he changes the the paradigm or the orientation of a standard townhome building. So in history, most of uh, multifamily houses usually have a front door and the front door faces the street. Okay. Now, the newest uh, sort of idea that developers have is to take that building and turn it sideways, have all the entries actually go perpendicular to the street. So essentially what's happening in many neighborhoods, and this is a lot of emails came to me from uh, neighbors that are experiencing this, is you take the building, turn it sideways, and you create a five-foot sidewalk, and everybody, maybe 20 units, have entries down that five-foot sidewalk. So they've created perpendicular alleys to the main street. So it's not just a security issue, but it's a planning and design issue. So some of the issues we're dealing with here are not just, well, what does the skin look like on the outside of the building? It's actually a planning issue that we shouldn't allow, and that is this one example of turning townhomes sideways. So we're working with a developer now showing him how he doesn't have to do that, that he can actually still have his units face the street, not have that five-foot wide sidewalk, and get the extra unit he can in there. And what experience does that create that you don't like? Well, the experience that the side load creates is basically it essentially deadens the street for that area of the building because now you have a a side wall right, facing as opposed to the a front door. Instead of a front door. Yep. But you've hinted at the economic pressures here. So I'd like to know from your perspective, Matt, are beautiful buildings or less unattractive buildings more expensive? I don't think that they have to be. I mean, I can think of examples around town of buildings that, you know, I view as unsuccessful or that haven't aged well over time that have very expensive exterior materials. I mean, there's, you know, some buildings downtown, some of the first residential that came in downtown came in at a point in time where corrugated steel was popular as an exterior treatment. Corrugated steel is not an inexpensive way to skin a building, you know, um, and so you can spend a lot of money, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to come to you know, an outcome that is going to be good over the long run. I think that, you know, really it comes to um, the design of the building, how the material transitions are treated. Color is a huge issue that um, often doesn't get, I think, enough attention and can hugely influence the outcome in a building. So I think that you can take building materials that are economical uh, and reasonable um, and, you know, and use them in a way that's thoughtful and come to an outcome that um, that people will stand in front of it. And everyone may not say it's a great building, but people will probably say that's not won't have consensus that it's a bad one. I don't want to single out your company's buildings for criticism, but I do want to ask about one called Broadway Station. Sure. This is on South Broadway at the Old Gates Rubber Factory site. And uh, as I looked at the photo, I saw this, you know, five-story building made up of stucco, brick, maybe some steel panels. And it does strike me as the kind of mishmash of styles and materials that Jeff was talking about. What's your take? Yeah, I think, you know, Broadway Station, you know, and the one thing that I will say about Broadway Station is that, uh, you know, the Gates redevelopment uh, that was happening back in 2007, uh, you know, we were the only – 
um, development company to be successful in moving forward and creating uh, a development there. So the rest of the Gates development has sat vacant for another 10 years. We've had a building that's served the needs of Colorado and served housing to that community for 10 years while, you know, the rest of that site's been a parking lot. But, uh, you know, from a design perspective, I think that, um, you know, that was an earlier building in, you know, the evolution of, uh, you know, our movement back towards infill product and, you know, more urban product. And I think that when you look at that building, you know, there's there's things that you look at it that you can say there's opportunities to improve. Uh, you know, we're using the same architect that we used on that building on our Sloan's Lake project. And I think that um, the outcome there is significantly different because over time we've learned how to use those building materials uh, better and treat them more artfully. This is the Alexan. And if you go to CPR.org, we have a link to Trammell Crow and you can see these buildings for yourself. I mean, I think that uh, Matt brings up an interesting point, Jeff, which is that, boy, there's no shortage of people moving into these buildings, right? It's not as if their aesthetics are <laughs> such a turnoff that people aren't moving into them. Is this really important when you're talking about the need for housing and the need for affordable housing in particular? Well, I think you can look at why people want to come visit or why people want to live here. And one of the questions you could ask is, Let's say we're doing a lot of housing downtown, which we are right now, changing streets, changing neighborhoods. One of the questions you can ask is, say, why would I want to get married and have a kid and have that kid grow up here? Why would I want to live here downtown? If you ask that question and you can't answer it because the quality level is bad or the amount of green space or the street is bad, then basically you've created a negative condition. But aren't those buildings asking a different question or answering a different question, which is we're appealing to young single people who are moving to Denver for the first time and then we'll buy the Denver Square potentially. <laughs> well, you know, that's a, that's a misnomer actually. Everybody thinks that all the new construction is just millennials that are, that are driving it. Is and a that's millennial a millennial myth? That's actually a, a myth. There are, there are baby boomers now that are right at that age, the perfect age where they're, where they're thinking about actually moving back to the city. And the demographic is actually shifting quite a bit. In fact, there's a, a group in California that has studied this um, it's called uh, the Missing Middle, and that group, you can locate them online, but that group is actually doing the research and the studies to, to show that that millennial, only the millennials are there. That's really a, a myth. I'm talking with architect Jeff Shepard and developer Matt Schilt about the design quality of the many new apartment buildings in Denver. And I want to move to something that, uh, Jeff, you absolutely think could, could change the aesthetics, and that is design review. This is a process that is already used in some Denver neighborhoods. It appears that the city is going to expand it to others, including an area called Arapaho Square. This is near downtown. It is right now a lot of surface parking lots, and it represents a lot of untapped potential for development. What is design review, and how could it change the the fugliness? Well, the makeup of design and small uh, Cherry Creek has a design review committee right now. It's been active for for many decades. Right, and some of the more established neighborhoods have design review. That's right. They have them, and you can look at you can actually look at what's happened to Cherry Creek. Now it's densified quite a bit. 
over the years and over the decades. So the character of the neighborhood has substantially changed. But what has been constructed and what has been built actually maintains a very high quality. Now, construction costs are pretty high for those buildings in Cherry Creek because that's an area that people want to live. It's got shops and retail. And so the costs are very high. But you can use that same idea. And what is the idea? Introduce us to design review. Well, the idea is that a neighborhood can actually form or a city can actually form different districts or areas where they have design review for each of these districts or neighborhoods. Presumably that each have their own character. Each have their own. And what happens is they might say that each design review committee should have a certain percentage of people from the neighborhood on that design review committee, an architect, maybe a developer, and maybe a lawyer even. But they'll they'll stipulate that the design review committee should be made up of a diverse group. So that way you don't just get architects controlling it or a couple of neighbors controlling what happens with the design there. And projects then have the opportunity to actually go through a process where that design review committee actually responds to the design that's being presented and actually offers the person who's submitting the design opportunities to enhance their product to make it fit better into the neighborhood. And so that there is input and it's reflecting neighborhood character. And Matt, as a developer, what do you think of design review? Uh, We welcome design review. In fact, we're developing currently two 12-story buildings in the Arapahoe Square neighborhood Interestingly, one of them was part of a design review process. The other one was outside of the boundary for design review. But uh, we've had design review with one of the Arapahoe Square buildings. We've had design review with a project we did up in Boulder. Uh, Our Sloan's Lake project had design review uh, as part of the master redevelopment that EFG put in place. Um, And as developers – uh, we welcome it. And again, I think that it can lead to better outcomes. Does it lead to more expense? It can. Uh, it can lead to more expense, you know, less uh, because of more expensive materials. I would say that it adds time. Time uh, adds both expense and uncertainty. Um, so those are, you know, uncertainty and time are two things that are, are dangerous to, you know, us in the development world. And certainly there are some developers who would not embrace design review. Agreed. I think that, you know, there, there, are, there are a handful of developers that probably wouldn't do it because they would be afraid of the process or, you know, afraid of the cost that it could impose. I think most of them that avoid design review avoid it because of the inherent uncertainty uh, that that process can introduce. Can we go back to this notion of cookie cutter and the fact that there are buildings in Denver that look like they could have been built anywhere? Jeff, is it your understanding, and Matt certainly weigh in on this, that in fact a lot of these apartment buildings are kits, for lack of a better term? That is, there actually is one in Omaha that's also in Denver. Uh, yes. <laughs> the, the short answer to that is yes, because you can you can go to cities and look at and see basically a, a, a floor plan or even a site plan with multiple buildings on it basically stamped out in, in other cities. So when you – I'll give you an example here. When you take a – when you look at some of the complexes around here, even if they're just three-story walk-up multi-family buildings and there's several buildings on a site, you look at those buildings and many times you can see exactly the same treatment of windows, decks, uh, size of windows on all four sides of the building. There's no respect for the orientation of the building. 
So there's no respect from a unit plan layout or a site planning layout whether or not somebody gets intense west sun or somebody's located on the north side of the building. So they're not taking into account something as simple as just where we are, sunlight, how sun travels across a building or or a room. Matt, just briefly. Yeah, on the other side, I would say that, you know, I'm not supportive of kit development, but I would say that uh, one of Denver's, at least early on, uh, more storied recent buildings, the Glass House, was a kit building. That building was done in Atlanta first, exactly the same thing. This is uh, on the plant. This is basically a confluence park. Correct. Yeah. And Sky House, which is uh, being done by Nevera, is a kit building. That's a 26-story building largely uh, curtain wall and glass on the exterior. So again, we're not doing those buildings, but that doesn't always mean that you're going to you're going to end up with a substandard outcome. Well, just to wrap up briefly, Jeff, is there some sense that you could do design review that process you talked about with input citywide? Or in many other communities around Colorado, do you think that's untapped potential? Oh, definitely. I think it is. I, I think the big question is, and Matt was referencing this too, is that when you get into design review, you tend to get into some discussions about whether a comment is subjective or objective. And one of the most difficult things to do is to talk about design from an objective standpoint. Mm -hmm. In other words, not just personal feelings about I like that or I don't like that. It gets to the heart and to the history of what made architecture great in the past and what can we learn from the past that we can then turn into future Jeff Shepard, principal of Roth Shepard Architects, and Matt Schilt is managing director of development for Trammell Crow Residential. We asked for your thoughts on the aesthetics of Denver's new apartment buildings. One response came in from comedian Adam Caton Holland, who tweeted that they combined, quote, the artistry of an airport Chili's 2 with the sophistication of a Stapleton storage unit. You can keep the conversation going at CPRnews.org. When we return, space veggies. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This is astronaut Chell Lindgren playing bagpipes aboard the International Space Station last year. Yes, amazing grace, 249 miles above planet Earth. Lindgren returns to his alma mater, Colorado State University, tomorrow night to talk about his 141-day mission. This is his first time in space. And uh, Chell, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Ryan. It's great to be here. Besides playing the bagpipes, you also grew vegetables on the station and became one of the first humans, I understand, ever to eat space-grown vegetables. That's right. We, uh, well, at least the U- first U.S. crew. That okay. was uh, an amazing experiment to be a, a part of, um, nicknamed Veggie. But uh, I got to start taking care of the lettuce almost immediately once I had arrived in space. And then um, about three or four weeks later, uh, we got to eat it. What kind of lettuce was it? <laughs> it was uh, it was a reddish lettuce. I'm not sure of the, <laughs> the actual type, but it tasted just like lettuce. It did. And is it hard to grow vegetables in space? You know, it's something that we've been working on for a long time. Of course, uh, you can't have free floating soil up there. It'll it'll all uh, get away. So we they've developed some pretty interesting techniques for providing 
um, a foundation for the root system and, and delivery of water. Essentially have these little pillows of, of clay uh, that we uh, inject water into on a daily basis. And um, the root systems are contained in kind of a little bit of a gauze. So it's pretty amazing to see, you know, these small seeds um, be seeded in, in this little gauze envelope and then uh, and grow into big heads of lettuce. Right, and so that they don't fly off. Well, the, the scene of you growing vegetables in space made me think of The Martian with Matt Damon. You know, he, he grew potatoes on Mars. Um, in all seriousness, though, how much of what you did there is preparing for, say, a manned mission to Mars, where you can't bring everything with you? You've got to grow some of it. That's that's absolutely right. You know, the International Space Station, it's a, a huge part of its mission is to extend our presence um, uh, deeper into the solar system, as well as uh, improve life back here on Earth. And so as a part of that, extending um, our presence in the solar system, you know, I think all of us felt a little bit like bridge builders. Um, building this bridge to Mars. We're uh, doing research and developing the operational techniques that we're going to need to have in order to, to be able to, to make it to Mars. That's, it's a, um, it's a, a big goal to make it to that planet and, uh, and then return safely to the Earth. And so um, a, a large part of what we're doing on the space station right now is, is figuring out how to do that. Um, and, and, uh, and developing a food system. You know, everything that we take to Mars... Uh, is going to require fuel and, uh, and, and, and come at a cost. So if we're able to, to, to grow some of our food supply, that decreases a little bit of that uh, logistics chain and, um, and makes the trip a little bit easier. And of yeah. course, uh, having, having uh, that food is important, but I have to tell you just the psychological benefit of growing something in the space station, tending to it on a daily basis, um, seeing this living, growing thing, you know, green in an otherwise uh, very kind of sterile, white and aluminum environment uh, was also very psychologically beneficial. Do you think that a Mars mission would happen in your lifetime? And if so, would you want to be a part of it? I certainly I certainly hope so. I think, you know, we're we're on that path right now. And, uh, um, you know, we have the goal of, of reaching Mars and the I think within the next 20 years, and we're developing the the Orion space vehicle um, to be a part of uh, of of that bridge to to Mars as well. Um, we're using the space station to identify the things that we need to address to make it there safely, um, and I, I do think that we'll make it there in uh, in the, in my lifetime. And so that's why I'm very excited to talk about my experience on the space station because I know that I'm talking um, with kids, you know. Very often there are kids in the audience that, that might be that individual that first steps on Mars, and that's an exciting thing. Mm. So it might not be you. It might, that might not sync up the timing. I, I don't think the timing is going to work out okay. <laughs> uh, that I will get to be a part of that mission, but I'm excited to, to inspire and train up the, the next generation of explorers. Uh, on this mission, you also played a role in the twins study that NASA is doing with Colorado State University. This involves Scott Kelly, who is with you on the space station, and his twin brother, Mark, who is a former astronaut and is the control subject to back here on Earth. Uh, did you learn anything particularly interesting from that work aboard the space station? Well, it was phenomenal to be a part of uh, that one-year mission and to be in space with Scott. Um, he was a tremendous commander and uh, and crewmate, uh, and our entire crew was was just a, a real joy to to be a part of. Um, 
it was fun to see this this one year mission um, in work. You know, I, we don't have any of the the results. There are no profound results at this point. It takes a while to get that data back. And of course, um, as we speak, uh, Scott Kelly's probably um, having some additional uh, data collections going on um, to continue to 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 gather data since he's been home just for you know a few weeks now right so that data collection will go on for some time and it'll take a while to analyze it but uh, I expect there will be some very interesting results especially since as you said you know we have this consult control subject in in his brother Mark Kelly and so I think it's a, a very unique and an exciting uh, opportunity to gather data as we're preparing for that journey to Mars. We are speaking with astronaut Shell Lindgren, who's back in Colorado for an event tomorrow and also Wednesday uh, in the state. He's going to be at Colorado State University, where he went to school. And while you were there, you studied cardiovascular physiology, I understand. And specifically, this is fascinating, what happens to blood in space? Of course, it doesn't have gravity pulling on it. And so uh, I'm speaking as a layman here, but I understand that plasma, kind of the glue for blood cells, moves upwards in the chest and head. And so blood has a very interesting behavior in space, I guess. That's absolutely right. And uh, and you're right. I did study cardiovascular physiology here at CSU with really an interest in, in uh, the effects of microgravity. And uh, and so when we get into space, there's a shift of, of uh, blood and fluids from the legs where gravity usually is pulling it uh, up into the chest and head. And, and it has some profound effects. You know, we have uh, identified that it causes an increase in intracranial pressure that may increase pressure in the eyes and, and cause um, changes to the structure and uh, physiology of the eye. And it's something that we are currently investigating oh, wow. to identify, you know, the, the causes of that and ways that we can avoid that from happening to, do, 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 and the visual changes associated with that. Yeah. Do former astronauts have bad eyes? Well, there are some astronauts that have had some long-term effects from the changes that they've uh, experienced in microgravity. And so, you know, that's an important thing. And, and we want to better understand that uh, as we undergo even longer missions uh, on the space station and, uh, and this trip to Mars. Um, one of the fascinating things about the journey that I've experienced is that, you know, I, I got to study cardiovascular physiology here at CSU, and, and my thesis project was actually on a countermeasure um, that uh, that the, the Russians developed. But I actually got is issued one of these uh, um, this particular countermeasure systems um, for my flight. So it was a, a very neat um kind of complete circle of, of training and learning here at CSU and then getting to experience it uh, in flight for real. I'm picturing like the socks people wear when they're flying, you know, for their blood flow. What was this apparatus? Well, the apparatus is called a, bra a bra bracelet or braslet um, in Russian. And it's a, a band that goes around um, both thighs to try and capture blood volume down in the legs. And, huh. and it's supposed to help with the adaptation period. So all of that blood that's flowing, shifting up into the chest and head kind of tries to slow that down a little bit and, and uh, make the, the crew member um, a little more comfortable. We have less than a minute, but uh, do you want to go back to space? Oh, I would love to. Um, it was an incredible experience. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, ex sharing that experience with my fr family and friends and on social media. Um, 
but uh, you know, I just had my turn. I'm, I've been home for a little over three months now, and I'm enjoying being back with my family and uh, and sharing this experience with all of those uh, folks that uh, helped me get uh, to where I am today and uh, supported me during the journey. Astronaut Shell Lindgren, graduate of Colorado State University, he'll speak there tomorrow night and at the Anything Library in Thornton Wednesday evening. You can see videos and photos from his. Months aboard the International Space Station at CPRnews.org. And just ahead, as the president visits Cuba, we listen back to a conversation with former Denver Mayor Bill Vidal, whose parents sent him away from Cuba when he was a little kid. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. President Obama tours Cuba this week as tensions continue to thaw between the two nations. At the height of the iciness during the Cold War, former Denver Mayor Guillermo Bill Vidal was airlifted from Cuba and came to Colorado in what was called Operation Peter Pan. In 2007, Vidal wrote a book about the experience called Boxing for Cuba. And let's listen back to the story of how he and his brother were separated from their parents, placed in an orphanage, and then eventually reunited. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. You left Cuba on September 29th, 1961. And I'd like you to describe the last few minutes that you spent with your parents. You know, it was probably the worst day of my life, really. Um, I I still uh, always think of that as a point of reference in how low things could get. But uh, we were in the Havana airport, referred to as La Pesera, which is uh, the the literal translation is the aquarium, but it was mo- more like a fishbowl. Like a big glass enclosure. Like a big, right. And so it, those who were leaving the country uh, were inside the fishbowl, and then uh, the, our parents were outside of it. So we said our goodbyes outside the fishbowl and went in. And that was our last words to them other than touching the glass, uh, almost touching their hands, only uh, only separated by the glass. Uh, and then we got on the airplane and, uh, and you're in a plane full of children, right? full of children. And there was a, a few adults. Uh, it was incredible because the adults cheered, but on the most part, what you, uh, what you really heard were the whimpering and crying of the children. Uh, and the, the adults cheered because this, this somehow represented uh, success in the face of, of Castro's Cuba. Yeah, I think it was liberation that they were away from this chaos that had pretty rapidly engulfed the whole island. Uh, and so, but you could hear there were a lot of unaccompanied children like my brothers and I were. I was 10 years old, my brother's 11. And I, I'll tell you, I, I wanted to die. My heart uh, was, I was in so much pain that I really literally uh, hoped that God would take me away. You know, I closed my eyes wishing for that to happen, but uh, God showed me no mercy at that time, you know, and, and we, we left, uh, flew, and, and by the way, that was our first time flying as well. you never even been on a plane? We had never even been on an airplane. Did, did you, um, I mean, this can't have been an easy decision for your parents to, to put their three children on a plane and, I mean, have no real sense for what life would look like on the other end. Right. It was very difficult. I think, though, for those of us who were there, you know, when Castro first took over, it was a very exciting time. You know, there was a sense of liberation. The Cuban Constitution was going to come back. But within about a year, there was great 
uh, deterioration of the situation. Castro had formed his agrarian reform where farms were confiscated. Um, he had declared himself a Marxist-Leninist. People were disappearing, in essence, uh, contributing to the rumors that children were taken away from their parents uh, and sent either to the Soviet Union or out in the fields. And so I, I could see in my parents that they were slowly overcome with a sense of desperation. And so when you were in that, that state of, of fear and great pain aboard that, that plane, did you have any sense that this was a good choice for you? Or was it purely about the separation from your parents? You know, as a 10-year-old, uh, it was sheer panic in the sense that uh, I was not sure when I would ever see my parents again. I was not sure who would be on the other side when we landed uh, to take care of us. It really felt like we had been cast out uh, to the winds, you know, our fate uncertain. Tell me a little bit about your life in Cuba before you left. Um, I think it's safe to say that you were middle to upper class. Certainly, we believed uh, that we were wealthy. Uh, my father had a good business uh, going. My grandfather had a hotel. But we were in Camagüey. Camagüey, uh, most people have never heard of it. It wasn't one of the large cities where, uh, you know, there was a lot of tourism and a lot more money. How, how far is it from Havana? Uh, it's about 500 kilometers. So that's, you know, six, 700 miles. A good distance. Yeah, a good yeah. distance. You go from that. And what is it that your parents think you're going to encounter when that plane lands in Miami? You know, a, a couple of things. One is we had family in Miami. So we had my grandfather had left months before. We had two aunts and an uncle. And so uh, there was also something called Operation uh, Peter Pan that was started by, uh, you know, at that time, the Immigration Department and Catholic Social Services, where they were placing unaccompanied kids in foster homes. So I think my parents' expectation was that we would end up in either a foster home or at least taken care of by our family. And what happens when you get to the airport in Miami? Uh, you know, that was horrible, too. Uh, my brothers and my expectation was, well, surely we'll see our grandfather and our family there in Miami. And when we arrive, I mean, there's no one at the airport. Well, eventually, towards the end of the day, uh, when the Cuban Freedom Flights, as they were called, came in, the people from Operation Peter Pan would show up to the airport to see what children were running loose, basically, that had been sent unaccompanied so that then they can take them to then process them to wherever, either, as it turned out, an orphanage or a foster home. That's right. Or orphanage in your case. The right. Sacred Heart Orphanage right. in Pueblo. This is where Colorado enters the picture. Right. right. And what was it like? I mean... I'm having such a hard time imagining what it would be like to be separated from one's parents and then go hundreds of miles inland to Colorado. I mean, have you ever heard of Colorado? Never had heard of Colorado, but we had been, we were in Miami for a couple of weeks in this place called Camp Kendall, where there were hundreds of Cuban kids that were waiting to be processed. And in that time, clearly they were trying to find spaces in, in uh, throughout the country. Uh, and when they told us Colorado, Colorado, and Pueblo, the fact that there were Spanish words uh, to us seemed like, well, that would be a good place to go. But uh, outside of that, we had never heard of it. I, I think compounding our fright, 
although we didn't know this until we actually arrived. Across the street from our home in Cuba, there was a, a, a place called the Asilo of Padre Valencia. So it was an asylum, which was part orphanage and part old folks' home kind of thing. And it was a very uh, uh, depressing yeah. place, you know. Um, so anyway, just keeping that in mind, we, are, we, we were thinking they didn't tell us, by the way, in Camp Kendall as we're going to Pueblo – that we were going to an orphanage. So the whole time long, uh, I imagined that that night when I arrived in Pueblo, I would be welcomed with uh, with warmth by an American family. A family that was going to take you right. In. And what did you find instead? Well, what we found is we, we arrived uh, late, late, and we get to this place, and as we step to the front door, there's a sign carved in the stone that says, Sacred Heart orphanage. Well, the word for orphanage in Spanish is orfelinato. So seeing that word orphanage, we knew what it meant. It was close enough so we knew what it meant. And then we knew what our fate would be for the future. And it was heartbreaking as well. I mean, it was just one disappointment after another. This is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and let's take a break, then rejoin my 2007 interview with Bill Vidal, who's Cuban-American. He was deputy mayor of Denver, then became mayor for a short time when John Hickenlooper left for the governor's office. As President Obama visits Cuba, we are listening back to this conversation about Vidal's book, Boxing for Cuba. This is CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. As the president visits Cuba, we're listening to the story of Bill Vidal, former Denver mayor. When he was 10, Vidal was flown from Cuba to the United States without his parents as part of something called Operation Peter Pan. We spoke in 2007 about his memoir, Boxing for Cuba. Let's fast forward a bit. Your parents eventually made their way to Mexico and then to the United States. How long was it before you saw them? It was from 1961 to 1964. So by the time they arrived, I was about to turn 14. Tell me about the reunion. You know, at first, uh, it was it was difficult for uh, for me to think about them being reunited. I think that I had grown, I, I think as a coping mechanism, I had grown to think about my future without my parents. I think it was too painful to think about them. And uh, and also, I, I think that because of the trauma of leaving Cuba, I was afraid of that trauma of leaving once again. I, I actually became more clingy to the orphanage. The thought of my parents coming in uh, seemed strange and, and foreign to me. It would have been another upheaval. It was another upheaval. At the same time, there was a lot of boys in the orphanage. I mean, there were over 100 boys. And so over time, my relationship with my brothers had been diluted by the myriad of relationships with all these other kids. So even this thought again of reuniting with my parents and and even with my brothers who had somewhat become strangers to me was difficult. And then I, I, I did wonder, did I really want to face them? How much had they changed? Would I feel a bond with them in, in any way? Did you? You know, I I did once again what I did when I was in the airplane leaving Cuba. I closed my eyes, kind of afraid to see them as the uh, the nuns who were taking us to the waiting room they were in. They they pulled us in, and I opened my eyes, and 
and and saw them, and although I saw them as older and certainly more weary, I, I recognized them immediately, and we jumped in each other's arms in exaltation, really, in excitement and and just uh, this longing to to hug each other. I, I do also remember just how long it had been since, since I had had a sincere embrace from an adult. Your family settles in Denver. Right. And why, why not go to Miami, say, where there are way more Cubans? When my father came to the United States, I think in particular my father, I think my mother probably felt the same way as well, but when they arrived here and they, we were reunited with them, and they discovered that in all those years that we were in the orphanage, we had never heard from our family. They had made no contact. He was incredibly hurt. I mean, they felt this was an abandonment. They, they felt it was an abandonment. And my father said, I'm going to stay here. I don't want to be close to them. Let's move to, to some of your professional life. Uh, you took a job as the head of the Department of Transportation under Governor Romer. Yes. Um, and when your father learned about this, he was furious. Yes. Furious. And there was a, a pretty mean fight between you two. W- why? You know, this is where I, um, I often talk about immigration. I, I think these kinds of things stay with you your whole life. I think my mother and father, this wound of losing everything as they did, was something that stayed with them for a long, long time. My father in particular, he, he really just became more and more conservative. And he also grew to believe that the Democrats were the new communists. Ah, and Romer, of course. And, and Romer, of course, was a Democrat. Yeah. So here I am. I had been with CEDAF for, uh, for, with the Colorado Department of Transportation for 18 years. You know, I'm an engineer, and uh, Governor Romer asked me to be the director. I mean, this, this was the pinnacle of my career. Right, I had to right. be the director of CEDAF where I had spent so much time. And all my father could see was that I was working for a Democrat. And he basically, he, he basically said, how, have, how can you become like the people who destroyed our country? Uh, the, the, who, who you and they escaped from. Right. I had always had a very complex relationship with my father. And, and to me, that was the, the straw that broke the camel's back in the sense that I just felt like there's nothing I can ever do that will make my father accept me. And so we we had a very severe fight, and then I didn't see him again until he was dying. Did he die proud of you? Do you think? Yeah, I I, I think so. He he had a cancer of his in his lung, and he was uh, slowly dying. So I would go and spend a lot of time with him every day, as as did my brothers. And he'd go through this series of venting. And so he, he'd go through this ranting and raving every day. But after about an hour or so of that, then he would become much more appreciative and much more affectionate and warm uh, towards us. And then one day he was falling asleep and he just simply, as he's falling asleep, all of a sudden he wakes up and grabs me in the arm and he says, um, uh, all I ever wanted for you boys was to be the best people you could be and to do the best that you possibly could. And he just, and then he says, I guess I lost sight of that. In the end, are you grateful to your parents for doing this? You know, I, my brothers and I have spoken about this often. We have never resented what they did. I, I think that going back to Cuba, one of the first things I did when I got back is to tell my mother, it's too bad you didn't go because you would have seen it with your own eyes that you did the right thing. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. 
former Denver Mayor Guillermo Bill Vidal. We spoke in 2007. Tomorrow, he'll join us with two other members of Colorado's Cuban community to discuss President Obama's visit. All three have been back to Cuba in recent years and plan to do entrepreneurial and nonprofit work there. Finally today, we are once again seeking your questions for the governor. Get those questions in today if you can. Our email address is news at cpr.org. That's news at cpr.org. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for being with us. Colorado Matters from CPR News.